0: I'm Aaron Broaddus, and you're listening to the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. Join me as I talk shop with some of Maine's most influential and passionate fly fishing folks about our diverse fisheries that make Maine such a special place to cast a fly. In episode three, I'll be meeting with Nate White of Northwoods Fly Company to talk about his awesome story of growing up surrounded by Maine guides and learning the history of the Androscoggin River and its fishery over the past four decades. Nate will also tell us about what inspired him to start Northwoods Fly Company and share with us his business skill of tying phenomenal, unique, custom flies. Welcome to another episode of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm here today with Nate White of Northwoods Fly Company about some pretty awesome topics and some Maine Fly Fishing history. Welcome to the show, Nate. Thanks for having me. All right, let's uh, let's kick off the show with you telling us a little bit about yourself. So, can you tell us where you were raised?
1: I was raised in Bethel, Maine. I was actually born in Peterborough, Hampshire, New Hampshire in 1976. Uh, my dad worked at Gould Academy for 30 plus years, so I grew up in a private school setting there. Um, yeah, it was a really good childhood. I got to play all over the, the rivers and streams in western Maine and did a lot of canoeing as a kid. Uh, Particularly, a lot of canoeing, uh, with the family.
0: Nice, nice. Um, Do you have brothers and sisters?
1: I have one sister. Yeah. Yep. She uh, she's older. She lives down in Northampton, Massachusetts. She's got twins. Um, she works at a hospital down there. Cool. Don't get to see them all that often. No.
0: Did she choose to move away from Bethel? She
1: did. Yeah, she went to college at uh, Smith College down there, and just yep. kind of stayed. I had my grandparents were from down there. That's my mom's cool. Side, so.
0: That's cool. Um, and just I mean just to get right to it how so how did you get into fly fishing I wonder being in Bethel Maine <laughs> how did you get into it
1: it it's kind of a long story but I'm
0: I'm actually a fourth generation
1: master Maine guide That's uh, awesome. my great grandfather ran a boys camp in the the early nineteen hundreds in Bolsters Mills Maine just part of Harrison um, he and my grandfather uh, did a lot of canoeing all over the state of Maine New Hampshire uh, my grandfather even canoed a couple of places in Canada. Um,
0: so, so they weren't fishing guides they weren't fishing
1: guides no uh, cool. my life actually started out as as guiding and taking up the family business of long range family style canoe trips um, on the Andro or no uh, St. John River Allagash oh, River okay. St. Croix yep. uh, a lot of northern Maine stuff um, but all over the Rangeley area as well I mean Umbagog Haas, all the Rangeley lakes that's cool you know, yeah
0: did you guys have like a camp up in the county Nope.
1: no no, you just no, go up there and either. just run trips? Yeah, just ran trips. That's, and. That's cool. You know, back in the day when my dad, grandfather, and I was still doing stuff together up there, you know, towing a fully loaded canoe trailer it was, you know, 10, 12 hours to get to Fort Kent, which now takes you in a normal truck like five hours
0: to do, Yep. you know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So how old were you when you were guiding with your grandfather?
1: I didn't officially get my guy's license until I was almost 20 years of age. Um unofficially started with my dad and grandfather probably around the age of 11 or 12 That's doing cool. trips with them yeah what did they have you do at that age <laughs> i i got to collect firewood basically Yeah. <laughs> you That's know the, cool. the deal with it was you know if i want to go on trips i had to be able to paddle the canoe by myself and i had to carry my fair share of gear and and i spent the majority of my young life paddling a paddling a canoe solo and learning the waterways and, and collecting firewood for them yeah so, would
0: they like send you ahead? No. Nope. Nope.
1: I usually tag along in the back, and it was yeah. it was really the best for me. I learned a lot by watching the two of them, um, particularly, you know, like running Chase Rapids on the Allagash. I learned all those pitches through my dad and grandfather. That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Do you still go to those trips today?
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't as much anymore. Yeah. I wish I wish I could. You know, my dad just finished, uh, I don't know, I think he said it was close to his 70th trip on the Allagash this summer. Yeah. Um, he's so he's
0: still guiding trips up there? My dad,
1: yeah, yeah. He's 74 years old. That's He's incredible. still guiding trips on the Allagash, the St. John, St. Croix. He's still doing it, man. Oh.
0: Yeah. That's pretty awesome.
1: It's something to strive for. Yeah. I, want, I, I still want to be there when I'm that age.
0: So now, is he doing those trips that are like a week long? Like he's just taking yeah, like and parties at, that long?
1: and actually, um, he's been working for the same girls camp. That my grandfather and great grandfather both worked for out of Casco, uh, Camp Arcadia. Okay. Yeah. Um, they've built kind of the canoe program there, and this this last summer was unfortunately my dad's last year with that group. Um, he's passed it on to a friend of ours, Chris Hayward, who works at Gould, um, and you know those trips he was doing three trips a year in in different places around the state with them. Um, he does have a couple of trips lined up for this next year with a Boy Scout group out of uh, Connecticut.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, how many like people he take all at once?
1: Well, there's restrictions on some of those rivers, so yep. you can only take you know a certain amount of people at a, at a time up there, um, and and we try and keep it anywhere from like six to seven canoes, because that's a lot of people to be responsible for while you're in the woods. Yep. You know, especially if you're going someplace remote like starting at Fifth Saint John Pond and trying to come down <laughs> the Saint John River. You know, that's that's a lot of people. But
0: now, when you went up there with your dad and your grandfather, did they fly fish up there?
1: We did bits and pieces of fly fishing. Yeah, we used yeah. to run trips into Allegash Lake, uh, particularly in the springtime, just to catch those big brook trout up there. That's cool. And uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, we spent uh, four days up. One, of, I remember one of the trips up there. We spent four days in there with. Uh, six guys, just my dad and myself. And, and we did all the cooking and the guys could just go out and fish all day long. And you're talking, you know, a hundred decent sized brook trout in sure. four or five days up there. Yep. Just trolling streamers on the pond and actually casting to fish on the, on the lake too.
0: Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Let your dad go make dinner and then you go. <laughs> yeah, <and> no. <laughs> no, at those, at those points
1: I was, I was behind the utensils helping cook a lot. So.
0: That's awesome. Probably yeah. learned a great work ethic from them. So. I did for sure. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool. So, How did you really get into fly fishing then? Like, was it around that age or was it later? No,
1: it was really early on, actually. Uh, My dad did fly fishing trips around the Bethel area, Um, you know, late 70s, early 80s. He did a few trips here and there, and I I basically got into fly tying by watching him sit at his vice at night and tie flies to take out with, with clients, and and pester him and you know i've got a great picture of me about the age of six sitting in his his vice actually tying woolly worms yep um and that's where i really started to get into it i didn't fly fish a whole lot until i was probably seven or eight years old you know they used to take me out all the time and let me dunk worms and catch horn pout here and there yep um some of the white mountain national forest ponds around that area broken bridge have have great stocks of that fish in them um and then my dad and grandfather actually taught my sister and I how to fly cast on the Wild River. Uh,
0: oh, tributary. awesome. Yeah,
1: so the very first thing I learned how to do was roll cast and hang yep. up in trees
0: and get yep. yourself out of trees. And yeah, you need that in Maine, don't <laughs> you? Yes, you do. you got to know how to roll cast for yeah. sure. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, did uh, did you guys go fishing on the Androscoggin a lot when you were younger? No. No? no. Uh,
1: when my parents first moved to Bethel, the Androscoggin was still... In that polluted period, mm-hmm. um, and it was it was on the uphill swing towards recovery. Um,
0: Had they talked about the recovery at that time, or was it still just? It was it was
1: actually ongoing the at that on time. You know, when my parents moved to Bethel, seventy seven was the Clean Water Act by Ed Muskie, Senator Ed Muskie. Yep. Um, and that really changed and stemmed the flow of the pollutants that were added into that river, and and the Androscoggin River was the. The worst-rated river in the nation for for pollutants. That's crazy. Um, and I I think to understand that you you really got to understand some of the history of that river too. Yeah,
0: so. we'll get into that in, in the next segment. Um, so when did you really start fly fishing? Like really going? Like did you go with friends? Were you hitting like when were you hitting like the Rangely region and all that <laughs> stuff?
1: As. As early as, like, probably 12 or 13, I used to beg my mom to take me and drop me off spots to allow me to fish on my own. Um, but really when I started to travel outside of that Bethel, Wild River area was uh, when I got out of a stint of law enforcement. I, yep. mean, I I went into guiding full-time for Sun Valley Sports on the Sunny River Access Road, Rocky and Lisa Frieda. Um, and that really expanded my horizons. I, I had gone some other places like McGalloway and, you know, pond in the river and places like that with my dad, but not as in depth as I did once I started guiding full time.
0: Yep. So, so when you were, when you were guiding for a Sun Valley, did you, what were you doing? What trip, what type of trips were you doing? Were you doing right in Bethel yeah. there or were you just kind of <laughs> all over the place? Sun Valley sports.
1: I, I had gotten out of law enforcement and, and Rocky approached me one day cause he knew I had my guide's license and it was late fall. And he said, Hey, I really want you to come guide for us. Stop messing around. You're going to have a great time.
0: <laughs> Stop messing around. Stop messing around. Yeah. doing what you're doing. Let's, let's awesome. get this
1: on the road. And, and he, I, he saw something in me that I probably didn't see in myself at the time. Um, and so I, I went to work for him that fall. We finished off a rental cabin they had. We kind of closed down the fly fishing side of things a little bit. And, and moved right into snowmobile season and, and went through the, the whole winter term of snowmobiling. And then spring rolled around. And um, that was their first true year of, of being an Orvis dealership.
0: Yep. What year was um, this around? This would have been
1: around 04? Okay. Or 304, somewhere in that that. How old were much. you at that time? I would have been 24. Yep. 25 years old. Nice. Um, we moved that next year into a platinum dealership for Orvis. Stocking just a huge amount of flies, rods. We were running two drift boats. We were run, running constantly on the Androscoggin. And uh, both Rocky and myself ended up getting our New Hampshire guides licenses as well. And we guided everywhere from Errol, New Hampshire, all the way down through Rumford.
0: That's cool. So yeah. you were doing everything from, you were doing trout stuff, you are doing smallmouth stuff. Yeah. yeah. Nice. That's very yeah. cool. A lot of fun. Yeah. Was, uh? would you say more of your trips were trout or more of your trips were smallmouth at that they, time?
1: They started more as... Trout trips, um, that swing in the Anderscoggin that we'll we'll eventually talk about here, um, led us to discover smallmouth bass fishing as a way to keep keep clients in the summertime and keep people going and not destroy that fishery that was that was so good for us um, as far as trout goes. Yeah. Um, so I would say you know spring and fall the majority of that was was trout trips, um, and then midsummer was all smallmouth trips for us. That's pretty cool. Yeah.
0: And, I mean, you can still do that today up there. Of course. Which yeah. is which is great. Um, and, yeah, again, we'll, we keep saying we're going to talk about the San Chicago River thing. But when I had my last interview with Greg Labonte, <laughs> I didn't ask him how he got into fly fishing. And it should be, like, my number one question that I'm asking every person. So I'm kind of st- sticking to that. So <laughs> um, so just kind of yeah. like right now, we'll talk about Northwood Fly Company and, um, and after we go through the analogue and stuff but so what's what's like your what's your current family situation current
1: family is uh, I live in Durham um, my wife Shayna works down here in, in the Portland area um, we have two beautiful daughters one Addison who's 11 and Avery who's gonna be six cool. um, not too long from now yes both of
0: my girls tie flies cool yes both of my girls can cast fly rods awesome <laughs> that's great they're gonna they uh are going to they're going to impress some guy someday, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Or some guy's some guys' dad, probably, right? So, you know, <laughs> I find it interesting that you grew up with um, a dad who was really, like, big into fly fishing. Because I think a lot of guys kind of our age in Maine, like, their dads didn't do it, right? And they just kind of discovered it. Yeah. And there's a lot of, like, a lot of people didn't grow up with it, with dads doing it. I mean, I didn't. And, like, a lot of people that I know didn't. So it's yeah. it's pretty cool that you got that. I You, you know. know, I there was always some, some form of fly fishing
1: involved with my dad and grandfather and even great grandfather on the trips that they did. But, you know, my great grandfather grew up in that area where you, where you killed every single brook trout you caught. And he always carried a little tin in his pocket with a, with an earthworm and a length of line (laughs) and a hook in there. And that's, that's the way he was. And, you know, my, my grandfather later on taught my dad a lot of that stuff and, and learned the value of catch and release and yep. and protecting what we had as such a as such a gem in Maine
0: did you get the fly fish with the grandfather
1: yeah, a little bit. That's cool. A little bit. Yeah. I bet
0: a lot of guys can't say that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of guys don't even fish with their dad so much, but, or a lot, I think a lot of people have been getting their dads into fly fishing. Yeah. I see that more. I,
1: I bet there's not a lot of people that can say that they've been on an Allagash trip with three generations in that's, their family. That's, no. My grandfather was
0: 90 the last time we did the trip together. Cool. And it was just the three of us. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. He must have loved that. Yeah. Just to be able to do that, that late that in your life is pretty incredible, obviously. What do you do currently for work? (laughs) I work
1: full time at Pineland Farms in New Gloucester. Um, I'm the company's environmental health and safety director. Okay. So, a lot like guiding, I'm adult babysitting every day.
0: Gotcha. And I mean, I've been to Pineland before, like, brought the kids there. I think we went like, I think we went sledding uh, like two years ago. I had a bunch of nieces and nephews up and went sledding there. Yeah it's uh there's all kinds of things to do there huh Uh, for sure
1: yeah i actually started out at pineland farms in 2013 in the outdoor recreation department nice um teaching uh orienteering and helping groom the cross-country ski trails up there and and doing events and all that stuff so
0: nice and then you're doing the fly tying on the on the side so to say on the side yeah and probably every night (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: uh, basically, I tie flies every single day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. you got to love it. Yes. Because otherwise, it's gonna, it feels like a job, right? And you don't want it to be. Yeah. No, nobody wants to make their passions a, a job in a way. <laughs> so, um, Sounds like you don't have a ton of time, but what, what are some of your other passions outside of fly fishing? <laughs>
1: uh, I've dabbled in firearm construction or reconstruction, um, built a few rifles here and there. You know, my oldest is into rock climbing, so I've kind of developed this little bit of passion for, for going to exercise and climb with her. That's great. Um, went this fall and actually got my hunter safety course done for archery. Nice. Um, started shooting bow this fall with a couple of good friends and never did
0: make it into the woods this hunting season. Uh, fly time took up too it's much Just fly time? Tying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, man, See, my Octobers used to be, uh, I used to try to dabble a little bit into bow hunting, and then it was like... There's still so much great fishing to be yeah. had. Yeah. So I don't even. I mean, I do a little bird hunting that month. Yeah. When the leaves drop, but before that, it's like, there's still. I want to fish until I I can, and, and what I mean by I can is below thirty five degrees. I'm yeah. not fishing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's too cold for I me. Mean, it's just too cold. It so. doesn't
1: become very fun after that. I no. mean, You just constantly breaking ice and and dealing with that it's
0: true it's true it's it's people may not know that about maine it's like you know after november it's really cold and a lot of your big rivers are iced over and a lot of stuff's closed too and you really can't get back out there until march or april and with the exception of a few like coastal rivers that have you know some good stock winter stocking programs and stuff yeah um do you hunt
1: i haven't hunted in a long time yeah i used to hunt all the time um man i just kind of lost the passion for that and sure. and I, I think a lot of it was just a change in life and and not guiding full time i mean we used to take a lot of time in the fall to to hunt we never guided people hunting but we took a lot of time that was kind of our time in between seasons to yep. to unwind
0: i think so, that that's me currently right now but i mean when you have a when you have such a full plate with stuff you have to pick and choose and yeah Something's gotta give at yeah. some point. So. And
1: at this point too with kids. I mean we got fall soccer and karate on Saturdays yep. and yep. eats up a lot of your life.
0: I'm not quite there yet. Two year old and a four year old, but it's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be that time. You'll so. find out soon. Yeah. Um, all right, so the other night, uh, you and I were talking, we were at uh, we're at an all points fly shop, uh Barfly event. We were at Lone Pine in Gorm. It was it was pretty cool. Uh, you and I got talking about the history of the Andershcoggin River a little bit. So you know for people who don't know about the Androscoggin, and it starts in Arrow, New Hampshire. Yeah. Right. And then it runs through parts of New Hampshire and then back and then it comes into Maine and then it dumps out down in uh is it Brunswick? Uh
1: yeah, Brunswick into Mare Meeting Bay. Yep. Uh Bath actually Mare Meeting Bay. Um and then you know joins
0: the the Kennebec there and goes gotcha. the rest I don't away. think I knew that. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And I didn't know that. Um we call it the Andro here in Maine for people who don't know. So yeah. <laughs> I've been I've been fishing the Andro, the Andro for about 10 years uh, from New Hampshire, like all the way down to like Lisbon stretch, um, which is close to the ocean. So I hear the stories from old timers about how great of a brown and rainbow trout fishery the Andro used to be. Uh, now it seems to be a thriving smallmouth fishery in most sections with a few small trout sections, um, barely seeming to hold on in a way. Um, can you talk about, I mean, you've been fishing up there since the eighties, seventies, seventies, yeah, eighties. Can you you talk about how like you've seen changes in the river over those years? I mean, that's a long, that's a long history, man. It is a long history. And I I
1: think to truly understand that river, you really gotta, you gotta understand its history some. So the, the town of Errol, New Hampshire was founded in 1700, early 1700s. Um, Berlin, New Hampshire was not too far ahead of that yep. um, in the time period. And th- the timber operations up in that area and the fact that that river could produce power enough to run mills to be able to cut timber um, was really what started the, the pollution revolution on that river. Um, you know, by 1886, they were actually making pulp paper in Berlin, New Hampshire. Wow. Um, and the Brown Company. Brown Family Company up there controlled 4.25 million acres in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and parts of Quebec. Okay. Um, and that's where they drew most of the, the hardwood and softwood pulp for the papermaking industry down there.
0: And this was late 1800s, no, so late 1800s, so they didn't have trucks, so they were running everything the, through the lakes and the it rivers. Running all through the
1: rivers. And it, and it was that way from, from the beginning for that whole stretch of river up there. I mean if you've spent any time on the Androscoggin and up in the arrow Stretch, 13-mile wood stretch, you get into some of those back eddies down below the Brown Company Bridge or before the Brown Company Bridge, and you can see four-foot pulp logs laying on the bottom that's there. That's crazy. You know, and who knows how old some of that stuff is. Yep. But yep. that's that's the way it was for, for generations. I mean, you think about that watershed and how much, uh, you know, of of... Umbagog, Gaziskahoss, all those lakes drained into that, into that watershed. Up Upper yep. Lower Richardson, you know, Lake, Maguntic. That's, that's a huge amount of water. That yeah, that's a, there's there. a lot of water
0: in that region for sure. In Western Maine or Eastern New Hampshire, there, whatever you want to call yeah. it. And it's like, yeah, you're right. There's just some huge lakes there. So, yeah. So it,
1: by, by the 1950s, that river was so polluted, um, One of the biggest things was uh, sulfate um, uh, liquor, as as they used to call it, or waste liquor. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an agent used in breaking down the fibers and pulp in order to make that stuff kind of float off the impurities and you get the pure pulp out of it. Um, And and a lot of that sulfate was just dumped right back into the river. Mm -hmm. And through the 40s and 50s, the smell, that smell of rotten eggs that occasionally you get that still comes off the river. Yep. Um, was so bad through Berlin, New Hampshire, and depending on which way the wind blew, you know, you could smell it all the way down into Bethel. And of course, if you had anything to do with Rumford or Jay or that area, you, you'd smell the exact same thing down there, but.
0: So Bethel is kind of sandwiched between the (coughs) two big mills.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it, the fifties, they actually had a fire right above the, the Rumford Falls, um pollutants that were just in the river flotillas of foam and Jeez. you know my my mom and dad moved to Bethel in in the late 70s and uh my dad said it was so bad you you couldn't canoe across the river it was just full of foam it was disgusting and I I remember walking walking to school as a kid and being like oh it's the smell of money is right. what I used to say you know it's the smell of the paper the spa the paper mills sure um and it was that way you know until 77 when Senator Ed Muskie introduced the Clean Waters Act, um, and it it really stopped the the flow of that stuff back into the rivers. It stopped a lot of the flow of the sewage because um, you got to think about that. All those towns up through there didn't have wastewater treatment. They were just dumping it right back into that river.
0: So he he was a Maine senator, right? Yeah. Now did did that also happen in New Hampshire at the same time, or was it? It, it was, was, was it like a. F- a federal thing or was it was it a more? federal
1: level and okay. and a lot of what happened was th- that river basically was dead there was nothing left alive in that river yep you know uh the the mercury content was way up there from from pulp separation and and the 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 liquor count was too high in that river the foam yep. flotillas of foam it had basically killed off all of the native species of fish that were in there
0: yep
1: um and I doubt that anything would come down out of the tributaries into that stuff, too. And there's some fabulous tributaries there that, really are. that account to a lot of what the fishery is today.
0: Yep. Was Now, were people farming at that time?
1: Of course, yeah. Using the um, andro
0: for irrigation? Yep,
1: down through the Bethel stretch. And yep. in the early years of the town of Bethel was actually formed um, kind of south and, and east of where the actual town of Bethel is now on what's called the Intervale Plain down there. hmm um, my parents live out on the Intervale Road. It's it's real flat, wanders along the edge of the Androscoggin River and it was just firm for uh you know, fertile farm farm ground in there.
0: Even during that time. Even
1: during that time. Yeah. Thing. Yeah.
0: So you were getting like giant ears of corn, right? Like, just <laughs> mutant <meme, meme> produce. <laughs>
1: it's funny, you know, people used to people hear about the history of the Anders Goggin and and you take them out there on a drift boat to float down through and they'd be like so we're gonna find like fish with mutant heads and stuff like that right you know I never saw any deformities in fish that hadn't come directly from a hatchery fish right and occasionally you get a hatchery fish that's got some sort of deformity going on but yeah no
0: for sure that definitely happens but that's interesting I mean I think I think people even today like they still think of the Androscoggin. And they still see that there's there's a mill. The mill's in Berlin, right? Yeah. Is there another they're, one in Gorham? They're closed. Those, okay. Those all closed.
1: Um, all those mills actually closed and were torn down in like 05, Okay. 2005 era. Um,
0: where they, was it in Gorham in Berlin? Was yes. There, there yeah, that whole,
1: yeah. that whole valley up through there was just loaded with that stuff.
0: And if you were to go to like realtor.com and look for land in New Hampshire, like everything in Berlin seems to be for sale. Yeah. Like every uh, house. So that's just cause there's no more work. There's, there's there, no more, right? there's
1: no more industry there, yep. you know? And, and that was the Brown family lost the majority of that property and the, the mill through like depression era,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and sold out several times before, uh, It would have been Fraser Paper, I think, was the last ones that tried to make a go out of it. But they lost $10 million in in the first year that they tried to reintroduce the paper-making process up there and just folded.
0: Yeah, because that stuff's all gone overseas. Yeah. Really. Um, Now, what's up there still? There's there's still the dams there. Yeah. Are those creating hydroelectricity? I I couldn't tell you you for sure. Yeah, I I couldn't tell you for sure. I'm curious if they're just there... You know, I'm, I'm always curious about dams because, you know, you see people in the West talking about how they're reclaiming rivers and knocking down dams. And, yeah. I mean, we have, like, literally thousands of dams in the state of Maine. Yeah. And probably, like, I don't I I'm just guessing here, but I've seen, like, the state of New York has, like, 50,000 dams or something like that. I mean, yeah. it's insane how many dams are on the East Coast. Yeah. And, and they don't do much for fishing, you know. They, well, sometimes they do, but...
1: They don't really do a whole lot, and... I know, like uh, the Shelburne Dam, you know that's still in existence, and that I can count probably three or four more up through that stretch, just off the top of my head, all the way up through towards Berlin. Yep. And you know that blocks a huge bunch of fish passage in there, and and some of it I'm not sure they could have gotten over anyway. Yep. In in certain spots out there.
0: But are there a lot of trips in New Hampshire that come into the Andro that are? There are bringing, bringing pretty good cold water sources. Yes, yeah.
1: Um, one right in Gorham, New Hampshire, the, the Peabody River dumps in right there. Yep. Um, it suffers quite a bit, I think, like a lot of Maine rivers and, and New Hampshire rivers and streams do from overuse from the logging days. Yep. You know, as that stuff starts to erode, it just keeps eroding. And, and you look at the Wild, wild River in Gilead, for example. How many times does, you know, the, the walking bridge up there get blown out? Because of of flash floods and floods during it, you know, springtime season and ice jams and and that that river is probably six times wider than what it needs to be or should be. Yeah. Um, There's a real famous trout pool up on the Wild River, the state line pool, where the state of Maine and New Hampshire both shared the line that ran through there. You can't find the pool anymore.
0: Just it's gone. Filled huh? in. Yeah. Yep. Just from just from erosion and from yeah. trees down and what whatever. Yeah. That's crazy to think about. I mean. And we're talking about the Androscog. Androscog is a big, long river. We're not spot-burning anything. Like, this is all just, this is just, a like history that there may be a book out there about it. We're probably not, you know. And it's just, like, I love hearing it from you. And I think other people definitely want to hear it because it's, it's a popular fishing river. Yeah. Um, but probably not as popular as it could be. I mean, the smallmouth fishing is amazing. Yes. And you can float miles and not see anybody, which yeah. is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, and there's some small trout sections in Maine. And yeah, they get a little packed, but it's nothing. Yeah, it's nothing crazy, so to say. So I mean, we're not here spot burning the Anderskoggin at all. Like this no. is this is well known stuff. We're just trying to learn kind of the history of it. And, yeah. Um,
1: There's a really great piece um, written by Francis Brodigan. Um mm-hmm. I believe it was 14, 2014, somewhere in that area, um, where they did a survey on the Anderscoggin River, and that stretch basically from the main, main new hampshire border down to the town of bethel the average width of that river is 412 feet wow so you think yeah. about how wide that that is down through there yep. you know that's that's a lot of surface area and it doesn't have a whole lot of deep deep pools other than you know the certain ones we know about sure obviously gilead bridge and some of the slots above that But
0: yeah.
1: you know the average depth is is anywhere from four to six feet in that river
0: so do you think with the with the mills closing that changed the water temperature? Of course it did.
1: Yep. Yeah, um, I I think the mills closing and in that era between like two thousand two and, and present day, I think that river has transformed, one hundred and eighty degrees, and then another one hundred and eighty degrees. So in two thousand five, two thousand six era, guiding that river. Um, the water level, almost, the, the water temperature kind of increased over that time period. The water levels would stay the same, but the, the amount of nutrients that were dumped into that river through human waste or through wastewater, whatever it happened to be, um, decreased the amount of, of plant growth in that river, which in turn decreased the amount of, you know, insect life. Yeah, bug life. Yeah. Um, right. And it also, it also took down the amount of other important things like crayfish. Yep. You know that's that's a viable food source for any Huge. large trout, Huge. right? So, it, it killed off a lot of that stuff, and I noticed in guiding up there that a lot of the traditional weed beds that I would see in spots going down the river had kind of just disappeared or been scoured out from flooding. Didn't seem to recover too much. A lot of that stuff is starting to come back again,
0: which right. is great. Yeah, was really good. Because I was going to mention that I've been mean, I've been fishing it, you know, for ten years, but I've been fishing like that Gilead stretch for pretty hard, like, the last three or four years when, you know, like, in the spring and the fall, and not want it gets hot and stuff, but yeah. um, i seen some great bug life there. Yeah. I mean, I've seen caddis, I've seen mayflies, I've seen stoneflies. Yeah. I saw a huge stonefly, like, three days before Halloween this year, I just flying, it. and it was so... I was like, this is weird. I believe it.
1: <laughs> but it was
0: it was pretty cool, and I'm like, yeah, some, I mean, there's still some, there's some good bug life there. There is. And so part of me is like, why isn't the trout fishing, like, seem to be better, or... You know, why aren't they kind of holding over more? Really quick, what years did you guide there?
1: Uh, <laughs> would have been for Rocky and Lisa, would have been somewhere between 04 up to like 2009 era,
0: okay. 8, 9 era. Because I've heard from, from people, and then I hear from other people who've heard from someone else, and it's like it kind of seems to be this thing where they talk about in the, the 90s, early 2000s, it was really good brown and rainbow trout fishing there yeah. and some pe- I mean some people have told me you could go there and you could have a shot at three 20 inch browns every day yeah. and it wasn't uncommon yeah and I think you and I know today that's not really the same case there it's not no it's and not. they started they started what I've heard is that guides got together with biologists and started stalking brook trout because they thought oh it'd be great for clients to catch rainbows browns and brook trout there right yeah and that was like early two thousands ish? Yep. Yeah. So yeah.
1: that would have been about the time frame that I was working for, for Sun Valley Sports and the the beginnings of the Anders Goggin Anglers Alliance started then. Yep. Um, we were actually float stalking the river. Um, the they would show up with hatchery trucks either loaded with brook trout or rainbows or whatever they were they were gonna give us and sure. and there'd be five or six drift boats there and we would float down with these we started out with nets, mm-hmm. and then the nets obviously didn't work out so well because you start to develop holes and the fish would just sure. swim through. Sure, And we changed over to uh, large totes with holes drilled in the side, and we could just lift open the lid and dump out two or three trout here or there. Sure, just to right. spread them. Yep, just So they to didn't all pull up. up in one spot. So the state started restocking the Androscoggin back in like 86,
0: yeah, um, because obviously, like in the '90s, there, you, yeah, you say there's good brown and rainbow trout fishing, but there was stocking going on too. Like it wasn't just great hold of our population. Well, you you got to
1: remember that that river was dead. Yeah. After the pollution up there, I mean, it, whatever fish you found in that river were coming out of tributaries. Yep. Right. Interesting. That that river was dead. So to try and to try and boost that, the state actually found natural reproduction of rainbows in a lot of the tributaries up mm-hmm. there. Um and it's still true to this day that you can find, you know, spawning areas for rainbows in a lot of those side channels and side brooks that come off of, of the, the cold mountains up in that area. Um eighty six they started stocking. The state of New Hampshire was still stocking at that point, and the state of New Hampshire actually stopped stocking the Anderscoggin from Berlin down to the main New Hampshire line in ninety one.
0: And then do they still not stock
1: it now? They don't stock it. Interesting. They don't
0: Do so you know it, why. It took, to the best of
1: my knowledge, they stopped doing it. I think they were focused. They were focused on trying to improve other areas of their stocking program, um, trying to improve the upper stretches in in Aral, You know where it's it's more of a put and take fishery up there. It's yeah. Five fish or five pounds, and you know they're stocking eighty plus thousand fish a year into that stretch. And, sure. And, you know, I think they kind of took their focus a little bit away from the Androscoggin, because there wasn't a lot of pressure to be had for angling basically from Berlin all the way down to, to the Shelburne Dam. Right. Um, and all those fish that were getting put in by the state of New Hampshire and a lot of those tributaries like the PBD and the Wild and other places like that are making their way into the Androscoggin River. It's the same thing with the main fish. And the main fish, the fish don't see boundaries. No, of course right? not. No. So, like, you here. know, my dad and I standing in, in 2006 underneath the steel bridge up in Shelburne casting to four or five hundred rising trout underneath the bridge up there wow you know to think about that those 90 percent of those fish were probably from the state of maine yeah and you're talking eight miles upstream nine miles they've spread out though and moved they've spread out moved and and they found a good feeding lie up in there and and good clean water to be able to survive in
0: anywhere from the spawn up in that area
1: yeah, there's some because I mean they don't spawn that, in the big river. No, it, they need the the they, shallow. And they gravel. need more, yeah, and and the majority of the Androscoggin River up in that area is comprised of gravel and sand and and larger boulder pockets here and there. But they need more of those smaller tributaries with a little bit slower moving stuff in there so that yep. they can actually do their thing and and have success.
0: It's really interesting to me, and and you know you look at that river and you look at the temperatures of it and. Did the I guess kind of a question is when they started stocking in the eighties were they like hey this would be really great for rainbows and browns because they can handle a little warmer water yeah, so to say than other trout yeah
1: and and to touch back on that article written by Brodigan, um, you know it it touches in there on temperatures my my dad John White was actually part of um, a team of of individuals that kept uh, stream survey data for Francis about temperatures in different stretches of that river up there cool. And, when you look at some of the charts in that article, you can find it on main.gov, um, it, you see that brown trout mortality starts at around 82 degrees of water temperature and rainbow trout are 77 or so degrees of water temperature. And you look at, look at how high the water temperature gets in that river between, you know june july and august yeah like
0: end of june through early september
1: even you know those yeah. those fish they're smart they yeah. can feel that stuff coming on and they got to find those cold water refuges to get into to be able to survive yeah um but i think the state saw it more as a brown and rainbow trout fishery than as a brook trout fishery simply because of of temperatures and and the fact that they felt probably these stocked fish could handle more of the pollutant in that water than, yeah. than what our brook trout strains can handle
0: now, I, just to throw kind of a little PSA out there, <laughs> it seems like people are fishing that all through the summer. <laughs> and it's hard because it's like if they're stocked fish, great. You know, like they're putting them there to take them, right? Like yeah. that's kind of the main stocking program. Yeah. But there's also holdovers. Yes, there are. So like do – is it a good thing for people when it's 78-degree water, 75-degree water to be casting to yeah. trout? I, it's <laughs> – The little trout population that we have left there, too. You know, I
1: I look at places like Connecticut where the Farmington River, they close stretches of the river when water temperatures get to a certain level and say, leave the trout alone. Right. You know, and and I think that the Androscoggin River, with all of its faults and all of its bad stuff that's happened to it over the years, needs to be left alone. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. And, And
0: it would grow it. There
1: are wild rainbows out there. Yeah. And I think if people can remember that, you know, during this, this stream survey study period, when the state was stocking all these browns and rainbows, they were doing a fin clipping program. I don't believe that fin clipping program is still happening. So for you to be able to tell the difference between a natural fish and a hatchery fish is, is darn near impossible. Pretty hard to do, yeah. Right? So Interesting. leave them alone when the water gets up there.
0: Yeah, I mean, it. it that's the thing. You don't know if they're wild or if they're yeah. stocked. And, but either way, it's like... Shut it down and maybe and maybe go do some smallmouth fishing. Like there's some <laughs> great smallmouth fishing there, right? You,
1: you think about Maine. Think about how diverse the state is on places that you can fish. You know, from between stripers and smallmouth bass and pike and muskie. You can do it all in
0: one day. You can do it all in one day. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. not the musky, but the the
1: musky would be tough.
0: Yeah, the musky other three though, you could striper fish in the morning, go hit some bass late morning, and yeah, then yeah. you can go in the mountains and hit some trout in the afternoon. Yeah,
1: and that's. That's what Rocky and I, you know, we started to run into, you know, again, in the early 2000s, 2005, five, six era was the fact that that river is getting so hot and we we're starting to notice that change of the fact that water was getting clean out there and it just wasn't having a, a good effect on the trout population. Um, and we discovered smallmouth bass fishing and for the longest time, smallmouth bass and there. Chain pickerel and yellow perch are are throughout that fishery
0: from, and pike.
1: from Maine, New Hampshire, all the way down through to Rumford. Sure. And you know a lot of people didn't realize that, and we were we were catching a lot of smallmouth between West Bethel and, and the village of Bethel itself. Yep. Um, and those fish have spread north, and and then they tend to go back again. Um,
0: I don't see them too much up in Gilead in that area, though. Yeah, but yeah. I'm sure they're there. Every once in
1: a while, you'll catch one underneath the bridge if you're yep. if you're slacklining in the wrong spot. But Makes sense. It, uh, it, You know, the smallmouth fishery on the Androscoggin is is huge below Rumford. Yes. And that's, we discovered that quite quickly and started running trips down there. You know, middle part of June when the water got up above 68 to closer to 70 degrees, we just left the trout alone and and went after smallmouth bass. And, you know, I was a diehard trout fisherman in my entire life. Very hard to pick up a fly rod and throw stuff for bass yep and and think of it as a as a viable fishery
0: it's it's hard to change your mentality on it but at the same time it's like you're doing like you're doing yourself a favor right because yeah. you're like diversifying yourself yeah you also are doing the the trout a favor yeah and you're also doing the smallmouth population a favor because you're kind of putting it on the map and like letting people know about it and it's a ton of fun, and a, tr- a fly rod is not just made, and I think that's so cool today to see that is, like, it wasn't just made for trout, right? Right. Like, there's so many species of fish that people oh, yeah. are catching. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's awesome.
1: So. Yeah. I, I'm not going to lie, I giggle like a little kid every time I see somebody catch a you know, two-and-a-half or three-pound smallmouth in fast water on a popper.
0: Right. You know? That's pretty That cool.
1: take and the look on their face when they're trying to fight this fish in, in 4,000 CFS of water and yeah. you're in a drift boat and you're like, hey, we, we got this, you know? Yeah. It makes me laugh, giggle. It's, it's one of the greatest feelings, you know?
0: It's cool, and I, I found, because I did some guiding for smallmouth for a couple of years down further in, like, that Lisbon stretch in Durham, that area. And um I kind of found that they were a lot at points in the season a lot like trout like they hung in the same type of places like pockets or faster water right yeah. like they weren't just sitting out in like the big slow slow runs and stuff yeah you
1: know? you know I mean they're like any other fish species they're they're gonna move they're gonna different times of the year they're gonna be in different spots sometimes they want to hold in deeper water sometimes they want to hold in super fast stuff sometimes they want to be down in the real slack stuff yeah it, it where you find fish one day might not be where you find fish the next day sure and that's to me one of the greatest parts about guiding and fishing in general is is the hunt of it you know and Mm -hmm. and figuring that fish out and just when you think you got them figured out they change their pattern again and do something different but it's what what keeps it
0: fresh for sure for sure um i'm gonna put you on the spot here just (laughs) because i mean i've been guiding like five years you guided for a long time um what's your what's like your best day of guiding do you have, like, a memory of your best day? Best day of guiding? Yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> I'm really putting you on the spot. Yeah, right you now. are putting
1: me on the spot, man. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I've had so many, I think I've had so many best days, it's hard to choose just one. Sure. You know, um, to me, I think probably one of the best days that I've had in most recent years was working with uh, um, Back in the Mainstream. Nice. You know, the veterans group here in Maine, and, and we actually guided Smallmouth, myself and Warren Parker and Bob Harkins from Western Maine Guide Service um, last year down in the Rumford stretch. And, and just the opportunity to give back to those guys yep. and, you know, see the excitement on their face when they catch fish sure. is, is I, that's right
0: up there. Did you guys do a lot of fly fishing with those guys? We both, both conventional yeah. gear
1: and, and fly fishing with them, yeah. you know, and it, it depends on the mood the individual's in. Absolutely. You know,
0: no, it's, and, it is harder, obviously. Yeah. I mean, your spin gear, you can catch more because you can cast further. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Cover more water. Yeah.
1: Use a little bit different technique and a little bit different. Sure.
0: You know, presentation. But, it, but it's cool to see people getting into small on, on fly rods Cause yeah. I mean, they jump for you, they run for you. Like they're hard fighting, you're in the river, so you get some current there too, which oh, yeah. is cool. It's not yeah. like a pond, so.
1: It's uh, the first time
0: I ever fished smallmouth with clients, I
1: couldn't have asked for, for two better individuals in my boat. Um, they called the shop, Rocky and I had explored the opportunities of doing this stuff, and these guys called the shop and said, hey, you know, we used to go with this other outfitter, they don't have room for us, can you take us down there? I actually talked to the guys on the phone, I was like, look, straight up honest with you yeah, I've got some knowledge, I can row that river, I can put you on fish, but when it comes to the gear to be used for fly fishing side of it, you're going to have to help out. And these two guys nice. were like, don't worry about it, we got this.
0: That's cool.
1: And, you know, after putting 65 bass in the boat in you know, mm-hmm. one day down there, I couldn't wipe the smile off my face. And, and these right. two guys, you know, Jeff and Vito, uh, were repeat customers year after year for me. Mm-hmm. Um, still really good friends, and, and Vito's actually an artist, um, and he did a, he did a great painting of, um, my old drift boat and Jeff and the drift boat down on cool. a stretch of the Androscoggin. Very so, cool. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> These guys, they're, they're both saltwater fishermen, but yep. also bass fishermen at the same time. And they said, you get us within 35, 40 feet of the bank and we'll, we'll make it happen.
0: Yeah. So. It's fun. I mean, you get a lot of action. It's usually a beautiful day, right? Yeah. It's like a July sunny day. You're just floating down the river, like bacon in the boat, like a potato. Yeah, you're having a blast yeah, doing it's it. It's great. <laughs> it's great. For me, it's better than being on the beach. I hate going to the beach. Yeah, just laying there on a towel, mm-hmm. bacon. I'd rather have a flower rod in my hand. Yeah. So, <laughs> how about your uh, how about your t- your worst day?
1: Worst day. Yeah. Oh, God. do we really have to talk about this? I guess I'm, put, I'm putting <laughs> you on, <the> <laughs> really on the spot. I'm just,
0: I'm just thinking to myself <laughs> what what's my best and my worst day. So,
1: my worst day. It started out very early in the morning at the shop. Um, the two gentlemen that were booked for the day came into the shop, and the very first thing that the guy said was, how are we going to be fishing today? And I said, there's not a lot going on for hatches, so we're going to be stripping my favorite streamer combination mm-hmm. for these guys on a sink tip. And the guy said, nope, I'm a dry fly fisherman.
0: Nice. And I was like... Nice and flexible. Yeah.
1: I said, <laughs> all right. I said, but I-, I can guarantee you fish if you are willing to open up and fish you know, the way that I can present to these guys, and I said, I can't guarantee you that they're going to take dry flies, and he kind of went off the deep end, and forced me to walk over to the house and get Rocky, and Rocky said, you know, I'll go take care of them. I'll be right back, and Rocky came back over to the house, and he said, well, you got the day off, he said, those gentlemen decided to take their money and leave the shop, there you go, he said, uh, it was not nice words said by either, <laughs> either side of us, yep. he said, you know it's it's part of the business don't let it affect you and and you know what we went out and crushed trout that day actually ourselves just wade fishing that's awesome stripping streamers there you go so (laughs) i love it
0: (laughs) i mean sometimes you do get those you do get clients like that who are very they just seen it one way right and they just want to do one thing but you know you fish these waters so much you're like listen like you're not gonna get anything today it's too cold or there's just there's it's not a good hatching time and
1: you know, I know, I know. It's not about putting fish in the boat all the time, um, but I think there was something about the way that that gentleman approached it first thing in the morning that it was going to be one of those demanding trips where if I couldn't produce fish for him on dry flies, he was going to do nothing but complain all day. Right. And that right. it doesn't, it doesn't make you feel good at the end of the day, and it doesn't make the other person in the boat with you feel very good at the end yep. of the day when when stuff like that happens. And a, a fish is a bonus a lot of time when you're guiding for sure and and understanding that it's called fishing and not catching for a reason. Right. Um, but
0: it, I mean, we always feel that pressure to it, put people uh, on as many fish. Like you want to see all your clients do well, oh, even fucks. if they're not being so nice to you. Yeah. You just want to see them do well Yeah, and you want to show them like, like what it's truly about. But I mean, again, even the bass fishing is you can have 60 fish with people who are brand new Yeah, and the next thing you can go out with some experienced people and catch a and, dozen it, or not yeah. even, you know, or get even, even skunked. And you're like, the heck! Yesterday we're out right here. The, you know, it's just it's crazy. It is for and sure. Nothing you can do about it. So, um, the reason yeah. I asked the worst day is I on the Androscoggin, and I've lost an anchor. I had to cut my anchor before with. Oh yeah. With two clients, and we got in some fast water anchored some water that was a little faster than I should have. Yeah. And the the drift boat was about one inch from taking on water. In the, in the stern so I was like all right we're gonna have to cut the rope
1: I've I've lost anchors I I lost an anchor uh above west Bethel um below what we call the poison ivy patch and
0: uh mm-hmm. a lot of that on the endro yeah
1: a lot of poison ivy on the yeah intro. Yep. um
0: another PSA
1: lost 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 an anchor and fortunately I only had one client in the boat and you know the water was just warm enough where I was up to my chest most of the time walking and slowing the boat mm, down yep. so that this guy could get into some of the the better holes to fish. And sure. It's it's an anchor eater if you've ever fished the arrow stretch. Yes. That arrow stretch is an anchor
0: eater. Yes, I have fished that before. Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, never lost an anchor there, but I can see how you could. Oh,
1: you learn quite quickly where you can stop and where you can't. Yep. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, I swim a, a few too times much
0: there. I fish. I don't guide New Hampshire, but I fish there kind of recreationally, and it's a, it's a cool stretch. I mean, there's, yes, there's a lot of good fish there, and there's a lot of good water, and it's different than the rest of the Androids, say in a way. Yeah. yeah. Right. It just seems like it's got. I mean, it has so many of these like fast riffle sections that hold a lot of fish, yeah. and yeah, it's almost like you got to break the the big river down into these like little tiny rivers. Yeah. As you're fishing it. Yeah. And June
1: cool. when the altar fly hatches on the zebra
0: caddis. Yep.
1: You don't have to be anywhere than the opposite side of Route 16 and tucking tucking zebra caddis up underneath the the edges there.
0: I like that. Um, (laughs) To go back to talking about the Andros, uh, the Andro and, like, the the Brookie stuff. So, like, again, the story I've heard was it was really great guiding, 90s, like, early 2000s. I mean, how many boats would be out there on, like, an average, like, June, Saturday, right?
1: (laughs) Let me me back up just a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. You would see a lot of canoes out there in the early 80s mm-hmm. um, and up into the early 90s. And their drift boating didn't really take off until closer to 2000. Mm-hmm. My dad and I actually built one of the first drift boats in the area um, out of a Greg Taitman boat company.
0: Very uh, cool. wooden
1: Drift Boat. That boat still resides up at Pond in the River right now. Danny Therall owns that boat.
0: I've seen that boat. Dark. I didn't know there dark was. Dark mahogany. Yep, looking color. I have seen it. Yep. 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 My, yep. Dad,
1: my dad built that early 90s i was somewhere around a freshman in high school um and and we fished that river but there weren't boat put-ins that were easily accessible for drift boats at the time so a lot of it was fish still not really not really no. <laughs> yeah well we've done some pretty silly stuff with drift boats over the years. i'm sure i'm sure you have too yes and and you know it So a lot of it was fish from canoes, so it didn't get fished as well as it does, you know, up into the early 2000s when drift boats came around. And then you started to see more and more boats out there, and realistically, you know, you'd see two or three other boats on a busy weekend back in the early 2000s. that That was a lot of people. But at the time, there weren't a whole lot of us guides up there that were fishing, but we're all good enough friends where we'd be like, Hey, where are you going? I'm going up here too. Cool. You know what? You stay left. I'll stay right. We're all.
0: Everybody knew each other. Yeah. Very respectful of that. Yeah. Like, and you know the drill. You, you know? know. You
1: know, and and you give people their space, and you skip from hole to hole if you want to skip hole to hole. That's yep. perfectly fine too. And you know, the other thing that drives me crazy a lot of times about boat fishermen is not giving wade fishermen some space in there. Right. And I'm guilty of doing it myself, particularly at the mouth of the wild.
0: Yeah. Well, it's hard. It's not. It's not that wide it's, there. It's
1: not that wide, and and honestly, most of the people that fish the mouth of the wild from from the shore don't fish it correctly, and it's you, hard. You miss a lot of trout that are standing yep. at your feet.
0: Yep, you, know? you do. <laughs> well, you, everybody. It's funny. It's that whole mentality when you're waiting. You always want to fish to the middle of the river. Yeah. How far can I cast? The yeah. fish are further. Yeah. Fish are further. They're and then when you're there. in a boat, you're like, "All right, how close to the bank can I get?" Yeah. And yeah, it's like two totally opposite and, things. So. And, and
1: I did that one night with a couple of couple of sports in the boat came down through, and these guys gave us the space, and my clients were actually catching fish right where these two guys oh, were standing. That's it gets they, deep pretty quick there. It I know does. That, yeah. So. The, the Not the two- to spot
0: burn again. Everybody fishes there, <laughs> though, but it's, it's. It's tougher than it looks in some spots there. Like, yes, it is. As yeah. a weed fisherman. Yeah. So the drift boat would have the advantage, though, for sure. Yeah, that, for sure. In that part.
1: And then, you know, the the popularity of drift boats and, and canoe access and kayak access has picked up so much that I, I I haven't guided that stretch in Gilead in a number of years now, but I can only imagine how sloppy it can be on a, on a busy weekend in spring.
0: Yeah, it's... it's um, I haven't really guided there much, I only in the fall. I've never guided there in the spring. I've fished in the spring, but it, it does get busy. But what I love about it is it's like everybody's fly fishing, you know. Yes. That's, that's the cool part to me. It's not like, because you can spin fish there. Yeah. And it's not like there's just, you know, spin fishermen everywhere, and there's a couple fly fishermen literally Like everybody's up there fly fishing. I love that. It's that's, that's yeah. very cool. You meet some great people there. Um, people are very respectful. But to, so to talk about the brookie part of it, you know, the brook truck started getting stocked really like in 03, they say, or like or that mid, kind of like when you started kind of when guiding around doing there. Yeah,
1: float stocking, yeah. yeah.
0: And, yeah. W- and was that, like to your knowledge, was that like kind of guides and people in the area saying, hey, like it would be great to have brook truck oh, here yeah. too?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Nice. I mean, and we. You, you have could, them in the
0: wild. You had them naturally in the wild. Though, and you right? could
1: catch them in the Androscoggin. Sure. I mean, you got to, all those fish will come out of those tributaries, you know, particularly fall back in the wintertime. If they can't find a refuge to hide in, deep enough hole to hide in in the wintertime, they're going to drop back to deeper water until they find that spot. And right. We caught some really, really nice brook trout out of that river. Um, but again, once that water temperature gets up, those poor fish don't have a chance right like so so today like they're i'll keep going yeah sorry it was it it was really pushed mostly by us in that area to to provide an economical boost to the area one as you know we're creating this this trophy if you want to in quotes you know fishery up here where you can come to maine and catch rainbows browns and brook trout all in the same day sure um it probably wasn't necessarily the greatest of avenues to go down with in that whole that whole scheme of things. And yeah, you caught the brookies early on while they were still there, but I don't I don't feel they lasted very long.
0: Right. In that river. Yeah, and I guess I guess there's like 'cause like the compl- the complaint that I hear about it is like they're stocking brook trout there. The brook trout aren't growing. They're not really probably living, right? Yeah. Like they're just not Yeah they're not able to survive because the water gets too hot. Yeah. Do you think also the water gets too cold in the winter for them? Or is it like, I don't, I I mean, I guess that doesn't make sense. I don't
1: necessarily think the water gets too cold for them in the winter. I, I almost feel like a brook trout is a little bit more sensitive to, to those environmental changes and, and to what is going on in that environment. It's to me, it's not, doesn't feel quite as hardy as a brown trout does or, or as a rainbow, and I think that's why those those two species of trout do so well in that in that water. Right. In particular. And man, I, I used to catch brook trout out of the Wild River as a kid, but once New Hampshire started stalking bows in there, we caught more rainbows than we did brook trout. Interesting. You know, I swam in that river with a snorkel and mask as a kid with my dad because he was teaching me the importance of understanding what flies look like from below. Cool. Gary LaFontaine track, Yeah, that's pretty cool. And watching those little native brookies come out of their little feeding lies and behind rocks and fast water and grab something out and, and, and duck back in again. Yep. You know, and I haven't swam in the Wild River in probably 15 years now, but I bet if you did swim in the Wild River, the majority of the fish you would see would be rainbows in there. Interesting. You know, and I, I, a lot of it is to do with the change, genetic change of that river itself. Um, but also, you know, from the Anders Goggin.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know? I mean, like, I, I think some people, they want they want to say, listen, there's a good, there's a good, like, holdover population of brown trout here. There's a good holdover population of rainbow trout here. Yeah. Why stock brook trout? Like, why not just, like, just leave those two alone? Because the brookies don't seem to be following suit with the other two, right? Yeah. And, like, no one, I don't know. I just don't know anybody, and I never have really caught a, a big brook trout there. I've never caught, like, a, you know, eighteen inch, twenty inch brook trout there, and maybe I'm wrong, and maybe there are people doing it, but I don't hear about it or see it very often. Yeah, so. I
1: haven't done that since like two thousand four. Right. Yeah. So
0: it was a long, like a long time ago, and like you just catch the ones that are like recently stocked. I mean, they're only stocking like between <clears throat> one thousand and two thousand every year. It's not like yeah. a crazy number. So, I think some people think that those brook trout are, like, eating the food that the rainbows would eat and the browns would eat and stuff, and but that's not that many fish at the it's, end of the day. It's not.
1: When you, when you think about the square acres of that river, the miles in that river, I mean, you're talking you're talking maybe 50 fish per per mile when it comes to that number of brook trout being stocked in there. Yeah. That's not a lot. That's no, not a lot. No. And, it, you know, back when we were float stocking, I mean, you're 4,000, 5,000 fish, 6,000 fish getting dumped into that river. You know, the state used to dump landlocked salmon in up there. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that they dumped them in down in Hanover, Maine. Yep. And if you've ever been in the Hanover stretch, it's sand.
0: Yeah, there's not, there's from, not flow, right? There's not Rumford fast water. Rumford Falls, bar. yeah,
1: it's it's from Rumford Falls all the way through to Bethel. It's basically sand and yep. mud bottom up through there.
0: So, like, why do you think the state is still stocking like the ten inch brook trout up there, or why are they still stocking salmon in Hanover? Like, they're just hitting the repeat button every year because it's. I think it's so. I
1: I I think there's some hopes that maybe some of those fish are actually contributing to the populations and some of the tributaries that are in there. Um, if not, they're certainly contributing to the food chain that's in that river. Yeah. Um, anywhere from the animals all the way to the people.
0: Right. You know? And I, I so, like, part of my argument has always been with the Androscog, you know, especially up in that that stretch there before, you know, after New Hampshire is, like, Why not just not stock stock Brookies for like two years and just see, just see if you not, if the state not stocking it, um, improves the brown and rainbow population or helps them grow bigger or whatever.
1: Yeah. In that 2014 era study, you know, the brown trout don't have a whole lot of natural reproduction in there. Interesting. The majority of that fish species that lives in there is the rainbow Mm -hmm. and they're, they're the ones that are really producing. Yeah. There's holdover fish. The sizes grow incrementally like they're supposed to. Um, the natural fish are a little bit smaller in size than what the stocked fish are, but those stocked fish had a, a hand up in the game in their first year of life because right. they, got, they got steady meals all the time compared to a wild fish. But if you look at a couple of the graphs in there, it, it shows you the percentage of brown trout versus rainbow when they get above 14 to 15 inches and the brown trout basically plummet. And the rainbows are actually the fish that get to be of, of larger size and yep. they're up to the five-year or six-year range in their life. Interesting. And, and not a lot of those fish are much bigger than that 17, 18-inch range, and there's not a lot of them. Right. Really. Right. You know, I I can say, out of all my guiding experience up there, all of my personal fishing up there, I've probably only seen a dozen bows and browns over that 18, 19-inch range. Um and I mean they're still in there. Like they're, I, they're I caught
0: it. one last year that was nineteen. It yeah. was beautiful. But yeah. and you know it's not a stocked fish. It was a brown trout. I know that they stock some big rainbows in there, but yeah. it was a big it was a big brown trout, but I mean one in like, you know, five years. Like oh, you yeah. know, they're not yeah. really they're they're there, far in between. In yeah. So so if so if you didn't stock if you didn't stock the river for a couple years, like the brook trout, right? It's like Kind of my argument was like, why not just try it? Because who in the heck is going up there to catch ten inch brook trout? Exactly. And also with the fish consumption warning in the Androscoggin, they still have it about the (laughs) you know mercury. Yeah. I just don't think people are like, especially fly anglers, like, oh hey, let's go up, let's go up to Gilead and catch some ten inch brook trout and like, and take them home. Like, no one's doing that. I don't think. It's
1: probably money and fish that could be spent wisely elsewhere. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I and I don't again. I don't know. I'm not part of the biology program for right. the state of Maine, and it would be interesting to ask that question and say, you know, why are you guys doing this? Maybe this I will.
0: Question. I want to get a biologist on here, and I I don't know why I'm so like hung up on that part of it, but I'm like, I feel like there. I feel like when there's the hope for something that could be really great, like a great rainbow and brown fishery there, like. All right, put some PSAs out in the summer. Like, don't fish for these fish when the water's at a certain temperature. Like, just kind of close that section down. Yeah. Let it be a great spring and fall spot. Yep. Try, you know, maybe not have brook trout in there because they just don't seem to be growing at the same rate or hanging out. Oh, sorry, holding over. Yeah. Like the other ones. So, it's kind of like, try to manage it for what it is, you know. It's it's like what Greg was talking about with the pike fishery. Yeah. It's like, manage it for pike. Like, don't keep putting brook trout in there. Yes. (laughs) They're just getting eaten. Yeah. And that's with
1: all of these other natural brook trout fisheries that we have in the state of Maine, so many, why not focus that money that's being dumped into these spots that it shouldn't be dumped into protecting those other pieces of water. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I
0: mean, and I don't know, like I'm not educated enough and that's a big part of me doing this podcast, but I'm not educated enough. And like, is the state, is the state putting money into habitat restoration where they can, or is like all of the money just basically going to stalking <laughs> the rivers, you know? And it's right. like Right. If it's, you took care of the habitat, things would improve over time. My you know?
1: my dad and I joke all the time about having endless money in a helicopter to be able to drop some of those jersey barriers into the Andrescoggin <laughs> to create habitat. I mean, you look at the floods have washed out all of those old elm tree butts that used to be along the edges of the banks. The the undercut banks are are little to none up there. Yep. I mean, there's yeah. not a lot of holding water for trout no. in that area. And, no. you know, if, if you it's had... An, sunny and yeah, shallow. Oh God, yeah. And if like, you had an endless supply of money where you could build some structure for these for these fish to be able to get into and, and get out of that stuff and have some protection, yeah. you'd probably see an increase in size and an increase yeah. in, in numbers of fish in that river.
0: You're totally like, right. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to find shade on that river. Yes. You know, and we all know that trout lake they like shade. Yes. And those undercut banks are just not there. It's like these shallow gravel kind of banks it yeah. seems like. And they all
1: just roll in and you know it's a lot of that is the, the abuse that
0: we've put on that river yeah. since the 1700s. That river is a crazy amount of history right? It's just it's awesome. Yeah. You know. Alright well that's that's some great stuff like I was I was so curious about talking about the Anishcoggin with you and <laughs> I've always it's it's been like this brain worm for me recently like just yeah, thinking yeah. about how beautiful it is. Cause I, like I read an article, like you were saying, there's an article about it being called, you know, back in the nineties, like the Yellowstone of the East. Yeah. You know, they were like saying it was that awesome. Yeah. You know, you could catch you know, three species of trout and landlocked salmon even at one point. Yeah. Right. Like you get a grand slam there.
1: Yeah. And that was, that was the focus was to try and I mean, try and put it into that. But I, yep. I, I think that time proved that wasn't the right direction yeah. to go for that river.
0: And it's funny because, you know, the water's gotten cleaner, so you would think, oh, great, well, the fishing should come back because then there'll be more bug life yeah. and, like, plant life and stuff. But like you're saying, it seems like there's been a perfect storm of things between maybe some, maybe some poor, like, management, you know, fisheries management on that section, yeah. but also definitely habitat yeah. destruction is, is yeah. hurting it, you yeah. know. And then also still having those dams that are creating a warm water effect is not great either so
1: yeah
0: it's tough for the fish man it is tough for the fish they're, they're surviving you know and um that's great that's all good stuff so let's take a short commercial break here just to talk about a small company in maine that's doing some pretty awesome things in the fly fishing industry hey guys if you haven't heard of the work that maine fly company is doing you need to check them out maine fly company is maine's premier small batch fly rod company they build small batch fly rods dedicated to maine's waterways Look for everything from one weight to ten weight rods from six and a half feet in length to twelve feet for the 2020 season ahead. Visit MaineFlyco.com to take a look at high-quality, affordable rods built right here in the state of Maine. All right, let's uh let's talk about what you're really here about. So let's let's talk about Northwoods Fly Company. I wanna um I wanna know like what gave you the idea to start your own fly tank business. I mean, I understand you did it from a young age, but
1: so Northwoods Fly is actually my second business. Okay. I ran crooked river rod and tackle from about two thousand six to two thousand eleven, somewhere in that era. And I was I was building custom fly rods for individuals and I was tying frame to classic mainstreamer flies. Gray ghosts, black ghosts, all and you name it. I was tying it and putting it into frames. Yep. Um,
0: collectors items. Collectors items. Yeah. Sure.
1: In you know single flies all the way up to nine flies in a in a shadow box frame. Um, and I I think I started tying the classic flies just because of of living in that Bethel area and its proximity to Rangeley and the the heritage of that area and Carrie Stevens and Herb Welch and all that stuff and. Uh, I never set out to be a classic mainstreamer fly tire. Yeah. And if you ask me today to tie you a dozen gray ghosts, I'll tell you no. Right. I'm tired of it. Yeah. I don't want to do it. Yeah, you want to do something different. It's not my thing. So little bits of life changes in there. Um, having left Sun Valley Sports and Guide Service, I, I kind of got out of the rod building business and, and kind of let the, the fly tying of that style go mm-hmm. and started tying more commercially um, and then moved, and I, you know, to Gray, Maine, and then eventually over into Durham, Maine, and I honestly never thought I'd live this far south in Maine.
0: Sure. Right? I mean, yeah.
1: I, I never wanted to be down here. I always wanted to be in Bethel or, or farther north. Yep. And...
0: Family <coughs> changes that, though. Family
1: changes that. Uh, sure. Life changes that. Weird things happen to you, but... So Crooked River Rod and Tackle kind of fell by the wayside. I continued to tie flies more, you know, commercial style, um, and then I just decided, you know what, I'm just gonna do it, and I opened up Northwoods Fly Company. Um,
0: when did you do that?
1: That would have been for yeah, yeah We're in nineteen. Would have been somewhere around sixteen. Okay. Fifteen or sixteen. Yep. Um, got my my tax ID. Started to actually. Do stuff like, yes, I'll take on commercial accounts tying for shops. Yes, I'll I'll tie you, you know, a thousand flies or whatever you want. Um, and quickly discovered that was not the route I wanted to go.
0: Well, it's not profitable. It or not f- very profitable. It's
1: profitable for the fly shop. It's right. not for the fly tire.
0: Right. Because there'll be like, you know, I'll give you a dollar. Yeah. Whatever for a fly and they might sell it for two fifty or 3 bucks. Exactly. You're also putting your money into you're, the materials. You're putting your money in the materials yeah. and... and to You'd be me, better off with a job at McDonald's sometimes hourly rate, right? right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Really would, right? And and to me, you know, as a guide, as a fly fisherman, I got tired of looking at junk flies and bins. Mm-hmm. And I'm not there's there's a ton of talented tires in the state of Maine. There True. are great fly tires
0: in the state of Maine. Um, but, this, but you're talking about the, tra- the traditional patterns. Traditional you know, like patterns. We have Western Western U.S. flies here. You go to L.L. Bean, right? And yeah. a ton of that stuff is from out west.
1: From out west. And, right. But, you know, like, if you if you go in to buy a traditional streamer fly in a shop, yeah, the fly that I would tie for a shop is not going to be the same as what you get from a custom tire. Right? And I got tired of looking at that stuff. And as a guide, I kept on saying to myself, you know, if I was still guiding and I had to go in and buy three dozen great ghosts right now, and they look like that I would be embarrassed one to put it on the line I'm sure it's going to catch fish but how well is it going to hold up right right yeah. and so the the idea behind Northwoods fly started out as high quality custom tied flies the way the person wants it in small batches if you called me up tomorrow and you said Nate I want 25 of your caddis jig nymph I'm going to tell you, I'm backed up on orders right now. It's going to be about this long. You're probably going to tell me it's no big deal because I don't need them for a little while. But when you get that fly, it's going to be bomb proof. Yep. Because I want that fly to last you. Yep. I don't want to have to hear from you again in another two months saying, hey, I need another dozen of those. Right. Unless because of, it's because the you, thread came off. Because the or thread came or off they, for your, or, or whatever. I mean, if you break them off on rocks, it's a totally different story. Of course. Because we all do that stuff. Yep. You know, and so the other piece of it for me was, as a registered Maine guide, fourth generation Maine guide, I wanted to do something to give back to my brothers and sisters in the guiding industry. So I offer 20% off everything on my website. Sweet.
0: If I was going to order some from you. I didn't even know that. But now I do, <laughs> if you're <so>. a guide,
1: <laughs> the only thing you have to do is you got to contact me.
0: Yep.
1: Right? I verify the fact that you're a guide. I don't care if you're in the state of Maine. I don't care if you're in the state of Alaska. Cool. I verify that your guide, you get 20% off. I give you the guide's discount code for the website or you call me up. We automatically, my wife does all the, the books and all of that stuff and in, in ordering. She'll automatically knock off the 20%. Cool. Right. So you look at our website and yes, our prices are up there in price, but I can guarantee you in that, that you're going to be satisfied with a fly. Yep. If you're not satisfied with that fly, let me do everything I possibly can to make you satisfied with a fly before I refund your money.
0: Right. And then, I mean, the thing is, when I look at, I look at the flies that you post on Instagram or whatever, that you don't see those at your fly shop. No. Like, they just look different. And then it's like, okay, well, you know, when the fish see, whatever, 10,000 gold head, you know, pheasant tail nymphs every year, it's like, do the fish kind of catch on to that? Do they like something a little different? So, I guess I'm going to ask you this question, because I haven't really, I haven't fished your flies before. Do you find a lot of them be really, like really different catch rates than like traditional ones? Or are you just, you have fish so much of your own now? Not to, not to <laughs> put your business on the spot. I yeah, mean, yeah no, I, I,
1: I mean, I fish so much of my own stuff now. Yeah. Um. And, and a lot of the patterns that I have out there are tested in house. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I probably shouldn't say this on the air, but I'm always looking for people to test flies for me.
0: Cool. So, <laughs> cool.
1: you know, there, there's, there's opportunities in there, I, you know, one of the things that I started out to do with this company was to break that stigma of of single-pointed flies or traditional flies in Maine. Mm-hmm. And I love to tie articulated stuff. Yep. And because of restrictions that we have in the state of Maine, I tie, I still tie my articulated flies, but I tie them with single hooks. And I tie them in the Right, because you can't.
0: Flesh. Some of our trout rivers, you can't fish you can't with fish, double hooks. Yeah,
1: single-pointed you know, artificial. But hook. you can
0: cut like the front hook, right? You could just. Correct. Yeah, well, bring, I, tie, I
1: tie on a lot of shanks, and, yep. and if you want, if, depending on the fish species that you're going for or the size of the fish that you're going for, I work with you. You know, if you want a trailing hook, we put a trailing hook on it. If you want a front hook, we put a front hook on it. Right. Right. And, and you know, I articulate a lot of stuff. And if you look at, you know, what guys are doing out west, a lot of the Kelly Gala patterns and in those big four inch stuff. That doesn't really correlate, or five inch or seven inch even, doesn't really correlate into a lot of Maine trout fishery. Yeah, you're going to catch some fish here and there, but if you simply scale that stuff back into a more manageable size for for Maine waters into that three inch range, you're going to have the same success rate of catching predatory, large predatory trout in in
0: Maine. (laughs) uh, It's funny you say that, because Kelly Gallup is killing it, right? Like He's the big streamer guy, and he's got great videos, and he's just... He just sells great flies, so I bought some flies from out there a few years back, and I caught my uh, my first brookie over twenty inches on a mini sex dungeon. Yeah, and it was like okay, I'm, I'm a I'm a believer of articulation nation. Let's and, let's call and you, it. So. You
1: talk about the the sex dungeon is one of those flies that is across the board a fish magnet in Maine. Yeah, you catch trout, you'll catch bass. Oh yeah, yep. you can catch bike on it. I, if you got a big enough hook, I'm sure you can take it out in the salt and catch a striper on sure. it. Sure. It's yeah. just one of those one of those things. And a lot of that, I mean, it's a it's a great overall pattern, but a lot of that is is to do with the articulation in it.
0: Sure. And I mean, like your traditional streamers, yeah, they like they work, but if you just fish like regular streamers all day, like it can be a slow day. Yeah. And you fish those articulated ones and you just it's almost like you just feel like you go out there almost with a little different confidence. Yep. Cause it's something new, yep. but it's also something that you see is working in other parts of the country yeah. and it's absolutely working here too. Like people are mousing more here in Maine, right? Uh, yeah. Like they're mousing at night. Yep. Shoot. I'm mousing. I don't want I shouldn't say this too much, but I mouse during the day sometimes and have success, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and it's like, uh, for bass and for, and for trout, but it's, it's cool that all these new things are kind of coming out. And I also look at a business like yours where you're like, I call you up and I say, listen, I see this a lot on my water can you replicate this yeah. bug or this yeah. this animal or fish or whatever yeah and that's cool to me that that's that's kind of the new trend in some yeah. ways.
1: I, you know the, the greatest part for me in fly tying is the development of new materials. The way that this the, the industry is going with a lot of the UV stuff is a, a lot of what I incorporate into my flies, whether it be in UV resins or in the beads or in the thread that's used. Um, and, and fish see with UV. Yeah. Right? I mean, it, it can be as much as adding just a simple hotspot to a flyer. You notice a lot of my flies have a different colored bead on the front of yeah. them. Yeah. And, and that stuff on any given day throws off a different coloration or different um, strength and in brightness that it flings for UV. And, Absolutely. And fish notice that stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. i fish yeah. fished some hotspot stuff the last couple of years and have noticed like just like good success on it. I mean, I do it's so hard to compare though too right because it's like it's not like you go out and you fish you know 50 days with just a pheasant tail nymph and then you go out 50 days with just a pheasant tail hut hut, you know hut bead nymph or whatever hot spot nymph and it's like it's hard to compare them both but at the same time I I like where it's going and I think it's I think it's kind of the new thing and what I'm curious to see in the coming years is like our fly shop's gonna kind of have to start incorporating some of this newer stuff and like I think changing, changing a little bit. If you, you know? look at
1: the trend in the industries, I mean, and, and this is a small industry. It really is. It really is a very small industry. Yep. And, but if you look at the trends, I mean, look at the amount of people that are doing tight line nymphing right now. Yep. Right. And you know, how long have you been tight line nymphing? Like
0: a year and a half.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, so two or three years for me. Yeah. And, and that's where I started developing a lot of those patterns and, you know, you asked me earlier about, do, do I strictly just tie jig stuff? You know, no, but about 90% of my fly business is that. Yep. Um, and and well, I didn't... it's a, a hookup, right? It's a hookup. It's, yeah. It's less hooks on the bottom. Yep.
0: Um, and we get a lot of stuff in our rivers here in Maine.
1: Yes, we do. Yeah. It's... <laughs> and through the weight of that bead, you know, using... Yeah, you're still putting stuff into the river if you lose it, but you're not putting a bunch of lead in the bottom of the river... Um, you know it's all done through tungsten it, it yep. it's just it's just a total different way of fishing but it's, it's the way that i envision this industry headed or at least over the next four or five years it's look at it i mean it's the,
0: the i think it's pretty fishing, cool it's know? pretty cool i mean people are not just doing so much of the traditional stuff and they're trying new things and those new things are equating to just more i don't know more big fish being caught i guess or just yeah. more quality fish yeah. or more fish and it's what we're all kind of looking for, you know?
1: It, and it can mean the difference between, you know, catching fish or not catching fish on true. any given day.
0: True. Right? It's very true.
1: I'm sorry, sir, but there's no dry flies rising right now. we got to yep. switch to this method in order to be able yep. to do I it. I
0: mean, I've swung um, or, you know, swung or stripped back or whatever traditional black ghost pattern, and uh, like in the springtime when there's, like, smelt stuff going on. And sometimes I've had some luck. Sometimes I've gone without. But then since I've started changing to something articulated... I'm um, seeing a lot more action on those days. Yes. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's like just taking something from somewhere else in the country and trying to incorporate it here. I mean, you go to our fly shops here, you don't see a lot of that. Is no. That's the point. No. and you don't I've, see articulated flies.
1: I've got right now sitting on my desk uh, a, about a three and a half, four inch mini game changer that's tied to look more like a rainbow smelt. Cool. I have not put that one out there yet because... I'm too busy to put that one online and then sure. have a bunch of people be like, hey, I want the fly. It's one yeah. of those catch-22s. But that that one also needs to go through a little bit of testing for me too this yeah. spring to see how well it's going to work.
0: But well, we get great smelt runs here. So yes, we do. We'll get, you'll, get some, <laughs> you'll get some time with that if you're not tying all yeah. the time, but How much fishing do you do a year? Not enough. Yeah.
1: Not enough. And I'm not complaining about that either. I, I'm on, I feel like I'm on this upward swing with a fly tying which is where I want to go. Yeah. I want I want to do something in the fly tying industry. I want I'm, I'm not trying to sound conceited or anything like that, but I want to see how far I can go with this. Yeah, you it's know? your thing. I'm, I mean, it's your passion. I'm just an average Joe from Maine, but you know, as I start to see more and more people from out west being like, "Oh, you know, I see this guy out in Maine that's tying this stuff that's pretty cool." That so is very cool. It, we all get that fuzzy warm feeling when people appreciate the stuff we do. Right.
0: And you and you're doing some uh you're doing some shows this winter. Yes, I am. Yeah. Tell us who you like collaborate with. Like what companies do you work <laughs> with? I think th- there's quite a list from what I've seen. There,
1: but, the, there is quite a list. Uh, the three major big ones I tie professionally for Partridge Hooks. Yep. Zap UV resin out of Denmark, and Hmh Vices right out of here in Biddeford, Maine. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, very mm-hmm. thankful for that main connection with Hmh Vices. Um, you know, John Larrabee and his family are, are just phenomenal, and I'm headed to Marble Mass with him, and uh, also down to Edson, New Jersey
0: with cool. him as well. Those are both the the fly fishing. The fly fishing shows, fly right? fishing shows yeah, cool. especially the
1: Edson one. But to, you know that it it's good for me, and I feel like it's good for John. He's got the extra help in the booth. You know, I'm I'm doing the best I can to promote his vices, but it also helps me get out and network with a few more people and. You know, I talked to a guy the other day on Instagram that I was like, man, your flies are just phenomenal. And the next message I got was, why the hell don't I follow you on Instagram? He goes, right. Same thing back to you. Like, where, where are you? And I'm like, I'm just this dude from over in Maine. I'm just minding my own business. But, right. you know, I really appreciate it. And yeah. I think it's it, it's going to help. Um, and Partridge Hooks has been phenomenal. I've been with Partridge for almost two years now and Raid Zap UV Resins, um, the by far Raid RaidZap is the best UV resin on the market.
0: Yeah, and you use that a lot? Do you use that like all like all over your flies or mostly for head like for the head? I
1: use it all over my flies. I'm I'm putting it in all of my game changers on all my thread finishes. I I actually instead of um, using traditional super glue when I put a thread base down on articulated stuff, I'm using UV thin from RaidZap. Yep. Um Klaus has been a phenomenal individual to work with. The whole Raid RaidZap team has been Yep. Um, you know the bobbins are great. Um, I apply a lot of thread tension when I'm tying streamers, and I'm only tying on hundred D gel spun, and you know the 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 bobbins hold all that stuff, and um, the new UV colors that they have out. Uh, actually, some of the flies that I, I dropped off here tonight have got little hot spots on them in orange UV resin.
0: Awesome! I can't wait to fish yeah. them. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. I'll I'll be a I'll be a guinea pig for you. Yeah, for sure. perfect. I love nymphing. Yeah. So it's. Uh, It's pretty cool to see something a little different, pull something different in the boxes. Every year, you know, I go, you know, between guiding and just personal fishing, I'm like, all right, I just retie basically the same things every year that work for me. Yeah. But then every winter, I watch some videos or I see some stuff online. I'm like, all right, I'm going to try a couple of new patterns or whatever. And, like, they almost always work out for me.
1: Yeah.
0: It's kind of funny. And I don't know if it's, like, a present. I don't know if it's just, like, I'm presenting them the same way as I'm presenting the other ones or not. But it's, like... I don't know, it seems we different. All,
1: we all build that confidence in in whatever fly we choose to fish with. And you know, I talking to a friend the other night at the bar fly, and he's like, I've caught more fish on a hair's ear, gold rib hair's ear with a gold bead than I have anything else. And I said, That's great, but let's change you from a gold bead to a black bead and add an orange hotspot colour to it and see how you do. Right. And he's like, Well, I, don't want I mean change. if it's all
0: you ever fish, right? I don't, I don't want
1: to change because I catch all my fish on this other fly. Yeah. Expand your horizons a little bit. Don't be afraid to try it, but but give those those alternative flies a good shot at the same time.
0: Fish them the same way you'd
1: fish anything else, and I guarantee you're gonna see the yeah. results. I
0: mean, like I told you with the black ghost stuff, I, I my hookup rates have gone up since I've fished articulated flies. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's not it's not some like big secret or whatever. It's just like I don't know. I I wanted to try something different. Yeah. I had a little more success. It's not like I wasn't having success before, but now I'm having more. And I'm like, yeah. okay, well, I'm, yeah. I'm into this So Now I'm like watching these videos tying these massive flies now. It's kind of funny. But yeah. Um, do, you, uh, do you post fly tying videos? I don't post any fly tying videos. No. Uh,
1: a l- lot of it is I don't have the processing capabilities to post fly tying videos. Yep. I totally could, I'm sure. I'm sure I you know, I've tied a few for Josh at All Points Fly Shop. Yep. Um... But that's like all that.
0: his his gear, right, or his camera. Yeah, it's all his whatever. stuff. And
1: I, I do have a really good camera, obviously, for taking pictures of flies up close. Um, I, I think part of me is uh, I tend to have a hard time throwing myself out there at times. Yep. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, something I could do in the future. It's just I just don't focus on that, you know. Yeah. I'm just so busy tying flies that it's hard for me to slow down. Uh, and just a
0: guy from Maine, right? You know, just a dude from Maine. <laughs> yeah
1: trying to trying to be humble about the whole thing
0: it's it's weird like it's weird for me like having the podcast it's weird for me like going on camera sometimes and stuff like i don't love my voice i don't love when my voice projects on camera like i have a very deep voice um and i'm like kind of self-conscious about that but at the same time it's it's hard though i like sitting there tying flies (laughs) and just talking to yourself seems kind of it just seems kind of weird you know
1: yeah so i can tell you i've been live once on instagram um and it was talking about the the HMH TRV vice. Um and it was a good time. I you know, I had twenty or thirty people on there, you know, kind of checking it out and asking questions and and it all started just by chance I sent a video to to the guys at HMH after I'd stuck a big hook in there and, and just showing how great the jaws on those HMH vices are. Yep. You know, and and Claws has asked me to go live a couple of times to talk about RAID Zap UV resins and I, I am neglecting that, and I should do more with that, because I, I think raids app is going to be the next big thing for UV. Cool. It's just a matter of getting the guys in the U.S. on board with it.
0: Yep. Yep. Because you, know? you said it was in Denmark, Denmark They're They're company. based out of Denmark. Yeah. They're actually
1: distributed in the U.S. by uh, Willie Emock out, okay. of, out of Livingston, New York. Yeah. Um, but they go through, like, uh, Jay Stockard, Daddy Flies has it, um several other other places actually carry that UV resin. Yep. Um, and if you can't find it for whatever reason, give me a shout out or whatever and I can help find somebody that can get that stuff. Cool. To
0: you. That's awesome. Um, is this something something you see yourself doing on like a full-time basis? Oh, I would love it. Yeah, I yeah. really would, you know. I But are if there guys who do that in this country? Like in the US? that I, you know of Yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean there 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 are some tremendous fly tires out there that own their own shops and you look at the guys from fly fish food you know cheech and those guys Mm -hmm. you know that's what they do yep that's what they do and you know i i don't foresee myself owning my own shop perhaps you know doing retail sales again in the fly fishing industry for somebody would be something i would i would consider doing um certainly guiding more in the future yep is, is right up right up there with that whole thing yeah but definitely tying flies is never going to stop for me and you know like i said before you know I, i'm trying to keep it humble but at the same time i want to i want to see how far i can climb in sure. the industry
0: what What i'm curious to see is if you're producing you know a great product and like our fly shop's going to maybe i mean i understand they have to make their money off of you know, markup stuff but yeah. are they going to start paying guys like you and these kind of specialty tires like them a little bit more for their flies and then i'm curious to see if it goes that direction obviously we don't we don't know but
1: yeah and and that's tough i mean i don't currently tie for any shops per we, se we don't and have that, a lot of shops here though we, we, we don't you know josh joshua at all points is the only person that i've considered actually putting flies in the shop for yep and you know i'm I'm still totally doing that for him, and, and my near enough smelt pattern, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've just seen it on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that, that near enough smelt pattern has been a huge producer, you know, both for fishing this last year and for me as a business. Nice. Um, to the point of like, I'm ordering heads from Flyman Fishing mm-hmm. Company on their commercial fly tires program, like five mil Flyman Fish Skulls. Cool. Like it's going out of style. Yep. And, and the same thing with the shanks and eyes and all that stuff from them. But, you know, Josh is the first person that I, I felt comfortable enough to say, why don't we put this near enough smelt in your shop and see how it does. Mm. Um, and and the first time I dropped off a dozen flies, he called me four hours later and was like, I need more. That's awesome. They're gone. And I'm like, you're kidding me. And I was like, dude, I got to finish a couple of orders, but I'll get some down to you. And the next day he was literally like, uh, how about it? Yeah. I, got, I could sell them. So, cool. you know, he's, he's the first shop, I think, that, has caught on to that and,
0: yeah. and, and he's new, it's not a it's not a traditional fly shop that's been around for a long time and yeah. Kind of all do their own tying so, so to say or I know a lot of fly shops too they order like from Montana Fly Company, right? Or they order yeah. like bulk bulk from somewhere. From somewhere you somewhere contact
1: else. any one of those overseas companies and do it. But yeah. but Josh is doing it, you know, ninety percent his himself or, or Leaf or Sean Baggett or myself or you know other people that are around the area are yeah. trying to help out with a lot of that stuff over there too. And
0: cool. Like
1: I said, man, there's a ton of talented tires in this state.
0: Yep. And
1: and it's it's fun to learn from other people and see other people's flies and it's it's also fun to develop your own patterns and, and see how successful those things can be too.
0: That's awesome. Are you um so like what's your what's your vision for Northwoods Fly Company? <laughs> Northwoods fly? Yeah. Uh,
1: it's nothing but uphill. Yeah. You know, I I'm,
0: you talked about doing some more guiding. I've
1: talked about doing more guiding. Yeah. yeah. So, my wife and I kind of have this like six and a half year plan going.
0: Um, six and a half. So you're counting like days, not just. years. Yeah. One yeah. of them. One of
1: them revolves. <laughs> one of them revolves around our oldest daughter actually uh, graduating from high school yep. and then being off to college, and then uh, our youngest will actually be sixth grade era. Cool. Um, my wife's current job, she's able to telecommute for. Nice. Um, and she grew up in Northern Maine, Frenchville to be exact. And, yep. you know, there, there's possibly a move happening there.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I know you shared that with me. I didn't know if you want to share that line. <laughs> it's kind of fraud. Kind of yeah. But. No,
1: man. I, you know, it's important to me to, to carry on that family tradition of guided canoe trips in that region. Yeah. But there's also, there's also a lot of fishing opportunities in that area as well. Right. And, and I'm ready to get back to that simple life. Of, of guiding and being in the woods and I, I love that side
0: of it I think anybody who has some fly fishing ties just thinks about like a simple life right yeah, and it's yeah, like yeah. I when you're out there fishing you stop thinking about other things going on in the world and you're like you're like I could just do this every day yeah you know, I could catch some dinner and bring it home and just live a simple life you know yeah and, you know have a vegetable garden and like I think we, <laughs> yeah. I think we all go back like 150 years sometimes right yeah, like, exactly fishing so yeah I get it man for sure I do. So, we, we, I think a lot of people may think about just quitting the hustle and bustle and kind of going and doing your own thing. You're, yeah. Man, if you're able to, I mean, you know, if you're selling that many flies and you're that, you know, profitable with it, you have a chance. You know, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I'll live vicariously through you. Okay. I that. <laughs> <So. laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, kind of the last thing we wanted to talk about, you kind of wanted to plug a little bit for Gould Academy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah?
1: Yeah, so... Uh, obviously I grew up at Gould Academy. Um, you know my dad taught there for 30 years and and I graduated from high school in 95 and kind of lost touch with Gould you know, never went on to, to college. I worked at Center River and then and started into law enforcement then guiding and um, a really good friend of mine, Lauren Parker works at Gould Academy and he's done exactly what I wish there was for an opportunity for me at Gould back in the 90s and he started a river ecology program up there and they take these high school age kids fishing on weekends they're doing stream insect surveys through my dad oh, so um, cool you know collecting your dad's eggs. a legend by the way oh. like like i've heard
0: a lot of john white stories <laughs> he is there's there's there's,
1: there's there's some big shoes there to fill cool and uh It's he he really is a legend. So um but but Gould is, you know, they're they're really pushing this, getting kids in the outdoor style stuff and and Lauren through this program this last fall we were able to take some kids out to the Salmon River to to be able to steelhead out there, three faculty members, including Lauren and three high school kids, and it was so popular and the school was so happy with the process. It looks like it's gonna happen again this next year. Oh, that's incredible
0: for those kids too.
1: And you know, they've got my dad up there helping teach these kids some about fly tying. And Lauren, you know, obviously he's a guide and guides smallmouth trips all the time, and, and they're taking them all over the place. But, you know, I, I kind of expressed to Lauren, you know, in this day and age, let me help do some lessons and give back to the school via video. Right? We can set it up so that I can tie flies. We'll get all the materials to these kids and and we'll teach these kids how to tie some productive patterns for the Androscoggin, for the Rangeley area. Sure. So that when they're out there in the springtime, they've got that opportunity to to connect to that circle in the end. Yep. You know, and, and so to me, for since 95 now i'm kind of trying to give back to that community again and, yep. and huge shout out to gould for doing what they're doing for those kids did you go to school there i don't think i, I, did. Yeah, I graduated in 95 Nice, yep. very cool yeah is
0: it is uh i don't know a ton about gould i th- i think i know that it has a lot to do with skiing right of
1: course yeah in in the beginning it wasn't always based around skiing but yes it does have an awful lot to do with skiing Um, They have
0: a sweet ski jump I drive by. Oh, yeah. Is that correct? (laughs) Yeah. 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 Down on their athletic fields. Yep, Yep. I've seen that. That's all (laughs) new since I was
1: a kid there. But, you know, when my parents first moved there, basically, you know, it was the late 70s, and it was a lot of partying going on. And then headmasters changed, and the swing came around to uh, more athletics and more well-behaved kids. And basically, my parents moved from one dorm to the next dorm, which was all boys. And when I was rambunctious or misbehaving they'd kick me out the back door and i had you know 40 babysitters male babysitters that <laughs> would watch over me and i could ride my my little trike up and down the hallways and play with my toys no, in the hallways cool. and you know i that's where i learned all of the wrong four-letter words in life sure and, yep. and it was a great great upbringing i mean i always had an indoor place to play in the wintertime and and great athletics my dad taught soccer there uh or taught mathematics um, but coach soccer, coach ski jumping, cross, cross, cross country skiing, um, you know, and it was, it was a great place to grow up as a kid.
0: Yeah. Is, now is the school mostly, um, it's most, is it mostly out of state kids?
1: It's mostly boarding students. There's yeah. a, a pretty healthy population of day students there. Um, my graduating class was like 58 okay. out, of, out of the school. And, okay. and I think there was probably only seven or eight of us that were day students out of that. Yep. Um, and you know, the rest of them are, were all boarding students.
0: That's pretty cool.
1: And they're coming from all around the world now, too.
0: Yeah, that's you know? awesome. And that's cool, like, just that not only are you obviously you have the skiing stuff there, but you're getting them into the fly fishing side of it. And you have some people who are super passionate and like knowledgeable.
1: Super passionate. And they, they've got a, uh, a remote control sub now. Wow. That they can take to areas. And they actually just helped IFNW do a little bit of, of, of study with the, the robot drone sub very cool you know really cool very cool really cool to
0: see that's awesome all right Nate well uh thanks for coming on the show oh thanks for Appreciate having it. me um you can find Nate at northwoodsfly.com or you can find him on Facebook or Instagram at n.w.flyco thank you for listening to this episode of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast